Amen. All right, well, grab your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a story that I'm sure you've heard if you've gone to church at any, any number of years, and you've been in Sunday school, I'm sure you've heard the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. We're going to learn about him this morning, we're going to study it, and this is our method of learning the Bible as we go through it, section by section, verse by verse, unpacking what Scripture has for us, and then shaping our lives according to the Word of God. And this particular section is one of the most powerful stories that you'll ever encounter in the Bible. We encounter a man seeking eternal life, and an amazing and unforgettable interchange that he has with the Lord Jesus Christ. He, we see that this man is a seeker in one sense, that he is seeking something. And if you reflect on that and you just think about people in general, isn't it true that humanity is made up of seekers? You could say that everyone's seeking something. Everyone's looking for something. Everyone's pursuing something. They're seeking meaning, or some are seeking purpose, or some are seeking relevance, or some are seeking power, or money, or significance, or pleasure. Everyone has something that they're seeking. Everyone is chasing something that they believe will offer them some sort of relevance, or significance, or purpose something that will satisfy the inner longings of their heart, something that will fill the hole that is left inside them. Everyone's seeking something, and you might look uh, at people looking for what will satisfy them in their wealth. Some people are seeking it in their careers. Some people are seeking it in their relationships or in pleasure or in drugs or you name it. People are looking for something. They're seeking it out and they're looking in all kinds of different areas for that thing that will satisfy them. What will give you meaning? What will give you security? What will give you hope and stability? What will give you a sense of significance and purpose? And here's an interesting thing that we're going to encounter this morning is that there are some people that are seeking religion to satisfy the itch for significance. Some people are seeking religion to give them a sense of purpose and meaning and security. Some people are even seeking the Christian religion. Not as a way to get right with God. Not as a way to have their sins forgiven. No, no, no. They're seeking Christianity as a means to have some of their psychological needs met. Their felt desires treated. They're seekers, and they like Jesus, and they admire his teachings, and they prefer to be around him, but they're not actually coming to Jesus on the terms that Jesus laid out for them. They're not actually seeking the true God. They're seekers, all right, but they're not coming to Jesus the way God designed sinners to come to him and attain salvation. I wonder if there are people who come to Jesus as a religious figure to attain some significance or relevance, or purpose, or meaning in life, 
but they have not come to him with the right attitude and the right posture for the right purpose. That there are some just to have their own internal desires met, their own felt needs addressed, perhaps to relieve some psychological angst that they feel. I wonder why you're here this morning. Are you here to worship the living God? Or perhaps for some other reason? It feels good to be around people who are kind of like you. There's a sense of belonging. Maybe being part of a church makes you feel like you're part of something that matters. Something very significant. Maybe the relationships you can get here create a sort of social Stability that enables you to get through life. It's something desirable. And Jesus, yeah, you like him too. He's admirable and his teachings are really good. They've influenced many people for many years, so sure, I like them too. But did you know it's possible to come to Jesus and leave empty-handed? To come to him with the wrong motives? To extract from him something that he has not offered and thus miss him entirely? That's actually the person we're going to meet this morning, which is a fascinating study because I wonder how many people are just like this guy who actually really like Jesus and want to listen to his teachings and perhaps are even willing to follow him around for a bit. But at the heart of things in their deep down core of who they are, are not willing to submit themselves to the terms that Jesus lays out. Let me read the text for you. I want you to follow along with me. We're going to be in chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. Chapter 10, the Gospel of Mark, verses 17 to 22. Let me read it, the whole section, and then we'll go through. We're going to unpack it and try to see if there's any thing we can learn about what Jesus calls us to as his disciples. And for those of you who might be interested in following Jesus, what does Jesus require of those who might desire eternal life? Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not be afraid. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Isn't that tragic? I've titled this sermon, The Seeker Who Does Not Find. We hear a lot about the seekers who do find, and those who ask, receive, and those who seek, 
find. We hear that in Matthew. But here is an instance of a seeker who ends up not finding. He ends up walking away sorrowful, sad. And in this text, we have to examine what's going on and what is it that Jesus identifies in this man that he lacks. Something that disqualifies him from being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Something that Jesus, in seeing this in this man's life, says, no, unless this happens, you actually cannot follow me and will not have eternal life. I mean, that's significant, isn't it? This is a heaven or hell kind of conversation. We're talking about eternal life or eternal death on the line here. And this man comes up asking for eternal life and walks away rejecting the method Jesus has given him to receive it. I wonder if we can ask ourselves as we study this text, why is it that I have come to Jesus? Because the why question is incredibly important. Another question related to that, am I fully and truly relying on Him and Him alone? So as we look at this text, I'm going to break it up into four sections to help us follow along. And I would encourage you to read your Bible along with me as I read through it. It'll be much easier to track. You won't be lost as easily if you get your Bible open and you can kind of see where I'm getting what I'm getting. This point of a sermon is to let the Word of God speak and let the Word pour out upon us and let the point of the text be the point of the sermon. And so I want you to see it in the text itself. Don't take my word for it. There are four high kind of uh, headings that I want to give this text to help us kind of unpack it. One is the question that the man asks, the lessons that Jesus gives in response, the delusion of this man, and then the invitation of Christ at the end. Let's start with the question. Look there back at verse 17. As he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, I want to remind you that at this portion of the life and ministry of Christ, he has now uh, done most of his public ministry in Israel, and now he's on his way back south to Jerusalem, and there he will lay down his life to die for his people. Look ahead at verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Verse 33, saying, "We See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. He's speaking about himself. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and this is the final journey. And on this journey back, there's all kinds of teaching opportunities that come up with his disciples. But before he's on that journey, a man approaches him. As he's just setting out, it's the very beginning of the journey, the text indicates, he's just setting out on this journey back to Jerusalem. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him this question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is often called the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, We get that because in Matthew, the details recorded that he's a young man. In Luke, he's described as a ruler. That is, he has an office, he has a position of authority recognized in Israel. And here, we know that he is rich. He's wealthy, he has many possessions. He is the rich young ruler. By all accounts, this young man is a picture of success. This is someone who has attained a lot in a short period of time. 
This would be someone, imagine someone in their 20s or so, a young man who has uh, built a business from the ground up, has accumulated wealth, has accumulated status in society, has built a respectable reputation. I envision this young man being like that. He's not old, and yet he's wealthy. He's not lived that long, but he's a ruler. He has status. He has position. He has wealth. He has authority. Somehow, he has gotten to this in a very little amount of time, indicating this is a highly gifted young man. This is a highly competent young man. And you see, just from the descriptions there in the text, that this guy is a mover and a shaker. Look at what we know about him. He's aggressive. He's described as running up to Jesus. He's fearless. He doesn't mind barging right up to Jesus, talking to the most popular rabbi that Israel has ever seen. He doesn't mind walking right up to him with that kind of boldness and asking him about these important questions. But you also see, this is a sincere guy. Look at him. Setting on his journey, the man ran up and knelt before him. Often people, especially in this ancient Jewish culture, you wouldn't kneel, you wouldn't run, you would be respectable and dignified. Here is a sincere young man running up to Jesus, getting on his knees in sincerity, taking the posture of a beggar, something no rich person, no ruler in Israel would think of doing. And then you got the fact that he's curious. He's got a question on his heart that has been haunting him. He wants to ask this question. I also like that this guy's respectable. Good teacher. Good teacher. He, he, he calls him good. He's admiring Jesus. He's acknowledging the goodness of Jesus. He's thoughtful. Look at the question that he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think what's going on with this guy is that he's accomplished just about everything he could accomplish in his life. He's created a stable life. He's created a secure life. He's got the status, right? And he's got the money. He's got the position. He's still young. He's got youth. And yet he's starting to observe something. Huh, everyone I know is eventually going to die. And I'm going to die. We all have to make this observation at some point that the things we do in this life are going to be cut short because we're all going to take our final breath at some point and everything we've done will no longer belong to us. I think this young man is coming to the realization that this life is going to be limited. And he wants to start thinking about the next life. Well, what do I do about that next life? I got this one taken care of, but what about that next one? How can I secure the next life? How can I ensure that the next life is just as good as this one? I got everything here figured out. I want eternal life. I want something that can outlast death. I want something that can take me through death itself, and I can last into the next life with the security I've been able to accumulate in my own life. What do you think about this guy? You like him? I like him just from from the get-go. Just from what I'm seeing here, I'd like to get to know this guy. I'd like to hear how he thinks. And it seems apparently this guy is a go-getter. He's a, he's a deep thinker. He's aggressive. He's bold. But he's also humble and sincere. At least apparently that's what we get from what he's doing here. He's asking the right questions. In fact, that's one of the things I love most about him is the question that he's asking. He's asking the right question, is he not? 
I mean, for all the things that we could say about this guy, he's asking a very important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> I'm going to die. Life is short. How can I do, is there anything I could do to ensure that the next life is okay? What a good question. And every single human being should at some point ask the same question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? What am I going to do about this thing called death that's coming my way? It's easy to avoid it, to drown it away, to uh, surround yourself with amusement and entertainment and distractions and other things that just drown away the reality of impending death, but it's happening. I mean, we even, just to talk about death in our society is, is morbid. We don't, we don't bring up that stuff. I think the last couple of years have made us face the reality that death is coming to us all. I think this guy understood that. And he began to ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if you've asked that question. Because the most important thing about you is not the job you have. It's not the career you're in. It's not the money you make. It's not the relationships you have. It's not the status you achieve. It's not the comforts you're able to attain in this life. It's not how high on the ladder you can climb. At the end of the day, you've got to ask the question, what's going to happen to me when I die? Where will I go after I die? Where will my soul go after it departs from the body? What will happen to me? Do I have eternal life? That is the most important question about you. The most important thing about me is not that I'm a pastor. It's not that I preach. It's not that I try to shepherd the flock. All those things are good. The most important thing about Eric Durso is does he know the only one who could save him? Does he have eternal life? What will happen to him after he dies? And that is the pressing question that all humanity must at some point face. Are you facing that question? Have you asked yourself that question? And do you have an answer to that question? What will happen to you when you're on the deathbed and the beeps and buzzes and the nurses are going in and out and the wires are all attached to you and you know it's close to the end? Do you have certainty what happens next? And how frequently people go through life without ever asking that question, just hoping upon hope that it'll just all work out in the end. And yet, this is the biggest question. Do you know an answer? What we're going to see in how Jesus responds, that he gives us the foundational understanding of what we must know so that we can have the right answer to that question. And I think it might surprise us. you don't know the answer to that question, I'm going to ask you to perk up and listen closely to what Jesus is going to say to this young man. What he's going to say. We're going to look at the lesson, verse 18 now. That was the question. Now we're looking at the, the lesson. It really could be more the, the lessons, plural, because Jesus packs a punch into this brief response. I, reading this, I just had to think, reflecting on Jesus and his response here, he is an absolute mastermind, right? He is an absolute mastermind to, 
to convey what he means to convey in such a brief and succinct response. The man said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Just, just pause right there. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying? I want to draw your attention to at least three things here to just unpack what Jesus is doing with this. He latches on to the man's word, good, the the use of the word good. And he says, no one is good except God alone. This is what Jesus is doing. First, he's beginning to build in this guy's mind an understanding of the nature of God. Mark that. He's first helping this man come to understand who God is. You see, God is good. God is uniquely good. God has a particular good. God is good in a way that no other person is. Do you see that there in the text? No one is good except God and God alone. God has always been good. In eternity past, he has only ever been good. All throughout human history, he has never done anything bad, never done anything evil, never done anything impure. He has always only been good, done good in the world that he's created. He is always perfectly good. He will be good for all eternity. He has never had a bad thought. He has never done a bad deed. He is always perfectly, impeccably good. And no one can meet that same standard, Jesus is saying. And that's the second kind of observation we're going to make about Jesus' statement. First, he's pointing them to the reality of the goodness of God. Second, he's pointing his listener, this young man, to the reality of the sinfulness of humanity. You see that? No one is good except God. God is good, but you also something packed into that statement. You are not, and no one is. Human pravity of man. God is good, man is not. Man is sinful, man has fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good. And if you were to pick a random sampling of 10 people from Rancho Cucamonga and you were to get them all in this room and you were to interview them, is man good? I bet the majority of them would say, man is good. Man is good. And if Jesus were to walk into that circle, he'd say, no, he's not. Man is not good. God is good. Can people do relatively good things in their life? Sure. But theologically speaking, no one is good. According to Jesus, if we're going to take Jesus' word for it, how many people are good? This many. Zero. None. And to reiterate this, Paul, just to be crystal clear, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Of the billions of people who walk on this globe, there is not a one who does good apart from God. No one seeks God. No one is righteous All, all have turned aside. And Jesus is reiterating this profound theological truth. God alone is good. God alone is holy. And no one else is good. It's almost as if Jesus is saying this to the man to bring this out. Are you willing to accept that you're not a good person? That God is good. 
but you are not. Are you, are you willing to accept this? And I think that this is something that every church needs to reiterate in every generation because we always drift towards self-righteousness, don't we? Every generation drifts towards self-righteousness. And what's the first doctrine to go when you drift towards self-righteousness? It is the sinfulness of man. And if we're not clear on this, then we drift away from it. And so we have to just point out that if we want to honor and respect what Jesus is saying here, we have to agree with him, we have to agree with Paul, we have to agree with the rest of Scripture and say no one is good. All have sinned elsewhere, the Bible teaches, and have fallen short of the glory of God. So what do we have so far in this brief response? We have God and we have man. God is good, man is not. Now let's keep going. Look back at the same response, verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Because there's something else Jesus is doing here. You called me good. He doesn't say, I want you to notice, he doesn't say, you're wrong to call me good. I'm not. He, He doesn't say that. He acknowledges, hey, you're calling me good. But you want to know something? There's only actually one person who's good, and it's God. It's as if to suggest something, isn't it? Do you know who I am? If you're saying I'm good, and there's only one who is good, and it's God, are you recognizing that I am God in the flesh? He doesn't outrightly say it, but it certainly is implied here that he is saying that there's one, God, one person good. I am good. You're acknowledging I'm good. If it's true, or what you say that I'm good, then what's also true? It's true that I am God. He's making a direct claim to divinity. What do we have so far that Jesus is unpacking in these very brief verses? We have the nature of God, we have the sinfulness of man, and we have the nature of Christ. Sound familiar to anyone? God, man, Christ. Jesus, in this brief response, is helping this guy understand the gospel and understand who he is so that he can be saved. But he's not done. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Jesus continues on now. You know the commandments. This is all, by the way, remember, keep the context clear. He's talking about how to attain eternal life. No one is good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud on your father and mother. Now, this is a restating of some of the Ten Commandments and um, some of the implications of the Ten Commandments here. Now, some people have read this and they've thought, well, Jesus, this is really, you know, the opposite of what I thought you taught. I thought you taught that salvation was by grace, not works. And now you're telling this guy's got to do all these works. It's not what he's teaching. Patently so. Jesus would not teach here the opposite of what he's taught everywhere else. This is not salvation by works. He's doing something very unique with this particular individual, okay? He is helping this particular individual encounter his own sinfulness, and he's doing that by having him confront the law. Or maybe say it this way, having the law confront him. In other words, what Jesus is trying to do with this young man, he's trying to help this man see that he is a sinner who has violated the law of God. He's inviting the young man to to evaluate his life according to God's moral standard. It's like, here's the law. How are you doing on this? How are you doing on this? Uh, Jesus is trying to break this guy's pride. 
If you're a Christian here this morning, um, this is an important thing to observe. Because sometimes we're trying to share the gospel with people and they have no need for a savior. I don't need a savior. I'm a pretty good person. Why, why do I need to repent? Why do I need to trust this guy, Jesus? You keep talking about salvation. Why do you think I need to be saved? The reality is that no one will ever recognize their need of a Savior until they are recognizing their own guilt. And Jesus here uses the law as a way to expose the failure of this young man. And often, we need to do the same thing in our evangelism. is to help someone recognize their need for Christ, we need to help them see that they have fallen short of God's holy standards. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's trying to help this man see, look, you've not lived up to God's standard. You've violated his law. You are not good. Only God is good. You are guilty. Because if you don't see that you're guilty, you will never come to appreciate grace. Grace is only, only valuable to the sinner and the one who knows they're a sinner. Grace is not valuable to the person who thinks they're pretty good. And that God is obligated to save them because they're so. The law of God need forgiveness of their sins. The law of God is meant to crush us, to crush our pride, to help us see we have no other option and no other hope. We cannot reform ourselves and trust ourselves to be saved. Listen, Jesus makes it clear here what is taught all over the Bible, this profound reality. And it is this. Jesus never taught that good people go to heaven. Jesus never taught that religion saves. Jesus did teach there are no good people. Jesus did call the most religious people of his day a brood of vipers who are children of hell. He did say that to the religious people. But he did not teach that the good people go to heaven and the religious people go to heaven. And yet sometimes we act as if, if we're good and if we're religious, God will accept us. And the words that Jesus has to this young man is to say, no one's good except God. God alone is good. And here's the law. And I want you to see the law so that you can know, that you can know that you've fallen short. That you're guilty. In other words, this is an act of love. Jesus wants this man to be saved. And he wants this man to come to understand his need of grace. But this man will never come to see his need of a savior until he's crushed by the moral demands of the law. So Jesus is showing him, look, here's the law. Here's what God requires of you. And that's where we get to our third point, the delusion. Because look at this man's response. Verse 20, and he said to him, this is the man's response, teacher. He dropped the word good. It's like last time I said that, he took, took advantage of me when I said good teacher. So now he's not saying good teacher anymore. He just says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth since I was a child. I've obeyed all these rules. Every single one of them since I was a little boy. Never committed any adultery, never stolen anything, never told a lie, never defrauded anyone, and honored my father and mother all the way through since I was a toddler. Wonder what his parents would say. He's absolutely convinced he's obeyed the law of God and he's met all the moral requirements of the law. He's convinced. He thinks he's done it. Uh, what what's also helps us understand what's going on here is that 
It was a commonly held Jewish belief at this time that if you were wealthy, you were experiencing God's favor. And there's a sense which, sure, wealth is a blessing from God, and God can distribute wealth as he so desires, and it's not wrong to be wealthy. Christians can and have and do possess wealth, and that's fine and good. But what they did is they took it a step further, and they believed that wealth was not merely a blessing from God, but that it was an indication of God's approval of your life. Because I'm wealthy, I know that God is approving of my life. Because I've accomplished these things, I'm wealthy. And the wealth that I have attained and the status that I have achieved is proof that God is looking down with a smile on his face at my life. I think in various ways we believe the same things that he did. My life must be comfortable because I have done things right. I experience a good blessed life because I have made good and wise decisions whereas others have not. God is approving of my life and it's evidenced by the relative comfort I enjoy in my life. This is not at all what the Bible teaches, that wealth is no indication of God's approval. God often allows the wicked to attain great measures of wealth. And if you are comforting yourself in your soul because you have status and comfort and wealth, you are comforting yourself with a false assurance that the Bible does not intend for you to have. This man has deluded himself. He has convinced himself that he is good, that he has not violated any of God's law, that he's meeting all of the moral demands of the law, and that he therefore has God's approval, and God's approval, approval is prove, proven by his status, his position, and his wealth. Look at what I've done. God must be looking down favorably upon me. This is the exact wrong response that Jesus wanted him to have. What would have been the right response of this man? think about that one you know jesus brings up the reality that only god is good and no human is good and and here's the law and you failed to meet the requirements of the law and you you hope uh, the intention the design of that kind of conversation is what it is to bring this rich young ruler to his knees in repentance it is to help him see that he has failed the right answer would have been teacher I know that I'm not good. I know that only God is good. I know that I failed to keep the righteous requirements of the law. I am a failure, and I cannot save myself or fix myself or undo the sins that I've committed. You know, even if I were to be sinless from this day to the end of my life, I would still be guilty of all the sins I've committed up to this day. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And I want you to reflect on this reality. Think of this guy. He's got the right question. He wants eternal life. He's going to the right guy. He's talking to Jesus. He's an overall good guy externally. He has all the marks of someone that we would like. And Jesus sees right through it. Right through it. Right through it. But it causes me to think how many people like this man are Deluded. They admire Jesus. They look to Jesus for answers, like this guy. They are morally upright. 
And so externally have the appearance of being very mature. But there's something missing that maybe only Jesus can see. That all the other churchmen and churchwomen who come to gather with you regularly, they don't see what's going on deeper and under the service. All they see is the same thing that we see with this man in the first couple verses. They see a guy hungry to learn about eternal life. They see a guy who wants to talk to Jesus and admires him greatly. They see someone who's externally clean as can be. Jesus looks much deeper and says, you're missing something so vital that in lacking this, you lack eternal life. Don't you think that there are people like this young man in churches all over America that have been brought into the church, baptized, put into leadership positions, all because they're interested in Jesus, they like Jesus, they perhaps use the words Christian, they talk about following Jesus, they're asking about eternal life, and yet they are lacking something, as Jesus will see here. See, this man is spiritually dead. He lacks conviction of sin. He is like a corpse. Apologize for the graphic illustration, but if you were to drop a boulder on a corpse, would it feel anything? No, it's dead. And when the weight of sin is dropped upon a spiritually dead person, when the moral demands of the law and the weight of violating God's law is put upon the dead sinner, they don't feel anything. One of the marks of spiritual deadness within us is we're never convicted of sin. We might feel guilty for having hurt people's feelings, but we are not guilty of sin before the holy God. We maybe feel bad for social consequences, but we are not feeling bad for the way we violated the one who truly matters, the holy God of creation. This man is spiritually dead. He's deluded. He feels no conviction over his sin. And I wonder if there are many just like him. And I wonder if there are any even here this morning who are interested in Jesus respect Jesus, because they respect Jesus, because they call themselves Christian, they're interested in eternal life, just like this man was. They're going to Jesus to get the right answers. They're living a pretty good and moral upright life. But they're lacking something. What is it that they're lacking? (laughs) Some of us might be thinking, how is it that you could have an interest in Jesus, an interest in eternal life, a desire to obey all the laws, and still be lost? It can happen, and it does happen. They're called false converts. And the Bible says in Matthew 7 that there will be many, not few, many on the last day who stand before the judge of the universe, and they will say all the good things they did for Jesus. And Jesus will say these last words to them as they are cast away into darkness. Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, they were like this guy. They had all the externals perfectly in place, but the internal was not there. Let's look at the invitation so we can see exactly what is it that this guy was missing. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved this young man. Many of the Pharisees elicited the most violent responses from Jesus. You know, these, these, these words that Jesus would say to some of these Pharisees are, are harsh, to say the least. 
just inviscerating these guys, right? And just, just calling them out, calling them a brood of vipers and children of hell. But not this guy. It's described here differently. He, he looks at him. It's the idea of just looking just with this heart of compassion and this heart of love. He loved this young man. And you almost can sense that Jesus in his heart is just grieving here. Almost the same way he grieved over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have loved to gather you in, but you would not have me. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. An invitation. Come with me. Come with me. You will have treasures in heaven. Go, go get rid of all that rich stuff, like that monopoly money that you've accumulated in this life. It actually only works here in this game. You come into the next life, it doesn't matter. Get rid of that. Come with me. You will have the treasure you seek. You will have the eternal life you desire. Give it all away. I wonder... You know, some people are, are confused by this because Jesus says you like one thing and then he goes on to list four imperatives. Go, sell, uh, come, follow, you know, all these things. He's, you know, what, what's the one thing? And, and when you really think about what Jesus is getting at, he's talking about the thing underneath all the things. Because the, the money's not the, the main thing right here. Jesus elsewhere never condemns rich people simply for being rich. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not the possession of money that's the root of all evil. Uh, to have money, to have wealth, is a blessing. If you have wealth, you should praise the Lord for it and use it for his glory. And yet, there is something that we see here, that there is a danger in having a lot of wealth, that the danger is that you can trust it more than God. You can find your status in it more than God. You can find your stability and security in your money more than resting and relying upon God himself. What is the one thing this man lacks? The one thing this man lacks is the self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing, self-denying, complete and total reliance upon Jesus and not anything else. To use the illustration, how many of you have been repelling and you get up there on that cliff and you're all latched up to this rope and, and you got this one rope and what are you told to do? To just lean back and every impulse in our hearts doesn't want to lean on that rope. We're trying to grapple. We're trying to fix our feet somewhere on our ledge so we can stabilize ourselves. We think that we can do the stabilizing and the instructor saying, lean on the rope. Lean on the rope. Trust the rope. Trust the harness. It's all good. You know, many people have done this before. You can too. Lean on the rope. Lean on the rope. And many of us are not able to lean on that rope. We don't trust the rope. Why should I trust this rope? I want to trust myself. And then you got, you're holding on the rope with everything you got when you finally start going down. And this is what Jesus calls us to trust me, rely upon me, rely upon nothing else in the same way that you rely upon me. Don't rely upon your money. Give that away. Don't rely upon status. Let that go. Rely upon me and me alone. Follow me. Rely upon me, total reliance upon me. Don't let your wealth control you. Don't let your status dictate your future. Follow me. 
Go back to that word love, where it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want you to notice that Jesus' command <laughs> to this guy, this, his invitation, come follow me, is coming from a heart of love. You see that? I want, I love you. Because I love you, I want to invite you into something. I want to call you to something. How many of us are guilty of seeing God as a cosmic killjoy? Anti-wealth, anti-money, anti-pleasure. God wants to say no to all the things you want to say yes to. And we grow up thinking that God just doesn't want me to be very happy. He wants me to get rid of all the things that make me happy. You got money? Get rid of it. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. We envision God as if he's just, he's just up there scowling at everyone. H.L. Mencken said about the Puritans, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And some people think God is that way. That God is up there looking. Is anyone happy? Oh, this guy has wealth. He needs to give it away. Do you realize that the reason Jesus is calling this man to get rid of his wealth is because Jesus loves this guy? And you know what this wealth will do to him if he doesn't let it go? This wealth will kill him, suffocate him, destroy him as he tries to build his stability and security and status on his wealth. It will inevitably inevitably let him down and Jesus would save him from that if he would listen. In fact, I want you to notice Jesus is not anti-wealth. Look at the text. Look at the text. You, he, he's not saying uh, you shouldn't have wealth. You lack one thing, he says, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure. (laughs) Jesus is pro-treasure. Jesus is anti-wealth that corrodes, anti-wealth that is perishable, anti-wealth that will never satisfy. He's anti-wealth that deceives. He's anti-wealth that corrupts. He's anti-all that wealth, but he is pro-treasure, pro-wealth, true wealth, imperishable wealth. The true inheritance. He wants you to have something infinitely better than the stuff you're chasing after. And yet, if we don't believe him, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be chasing all this empty, empty promises that never satisfy. Wealth is trying to call you in. Trust me. Follow me. I'll give you stability. I'll give you security. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a better way. There's a wealth that lasts. There's an enduring wealth that you can have. But it comes through laying down everything, trusting nothing else, and trusting me. I remember this this movie I saw years ago. uh, a sci-fi movie, and it's the, uh, the movie Minority Report. I haven't seen it in years, but this illustration came to my mind. I thought, I'm going to use it. I hope it's helpful. It's, it's this weird scene where he has to get an eyeball transplant, okay? And in the eyeball transplant, he gets these new eyeballs, and he's in this kind of shady-looking apartment, and he's in the dark, and he has to wear this bandana over his eyes because he's got to wait for his new eyeballs to develop. Weird, I know. Follow me. Okay. And, and as he's waiting, he kind of wakes up, and he's told that there's some food in the fridge. 
There's a nice sandwich and some milk that he could drink to kind of nourish him. So he, he wakes up and he feels his way over to the fridge. And he opens up the refrigerator and he's feeling around. And he can't see. Well, right there in front of him is this beautiful looking sandwich. It's fresh, fresh bread and lettuce and the nice turkey sandwich right there. And over here is the fresh milk in a jar. And he's, he's feeling around and he can't see him. And to you as the watcher, you're seeing it's right there in front of him. But then he, he goes past the good sandwich and he reaches up on top. And right on the top shelf, there's this old, moldy, green, rotting sandwich. And he goes for that one. And you see as the viewer, you see next to him is this old, curdled, green-looking old milk that's there in a jar similar to the other one. And he grabs the old sandwich. And he takes this thing and just he's blind. And he just goes, ahem. And he takes this big bite, and then he starts spitting out. This is gross. He spits it all out, and he starts reaching for the milk. And what does he grab? He grabs the green milk, the curdled milk, and in an effort to wash it all out, he gulps it all down, and then he spits it all out everywhere. And it's just this scene that you're just cringing, watching it all happen. And you wish, you're like, no, the good sandwich, it's right there. Oh, no, that's the milk, come on. And you almost wish. And, and I think of that illustration as something that perfectly exemplar, is exemplary of what many Christians and people in general are doing with their lives. They're blinded by their lack of biblical knowledge and their spiritual blindness and they're pursuing things that will not satisfy them. They're rotten. And if you ingest them, they will destroy you. And it's as if Jesus is saying there next to the fridge, don't eat the rotten sandwich. Don't go for it. There's a better one here. I got something infinitely better for you. These riches you are trusting in will not satisfy The wealth you've attained will not satisfy. It will not last. I want you to have a greater treasure. Treasure in heaven. And the way you get that is by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. And in following me, you gain everything. You lack one thing. He didn't want to deny himself. He didn't want to take up his cross. He didn't want to walk away from the status he had. He didn't want to walk away from the wealth he'd attained. And it's as if Jesus, out of this heart of love, is saying, let go of these paltry riches, those rotting money bags. They won't give you the security you desire. And we can look at this guy and point the finger. We have to ask ourselves, Are we trying to find security in our status, in our wealth, to the degree that it's making following Jesus pretty difficult? Are we trying to find hope in our career, in our comfort, in our position, rather than laying all those things down and following Jesus? Look at what the man did in response. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The offer of eternal life that he was asking for was handed to him. You can do this. Follow me. And he was so possessed by his possessions that he could not give them up. 
like Gollum with the ring of power. The more he had it, the more it became precious to him that he could not let it go. And ultimately, it destroyed him. I wonder about you. Are you possessed by your possessions? Are you controlled by your career? Is it hard for you to obey Jesus in some of these radical steps of obedience because you have attained a pretty comfortable life? Your wealth, your status, and your position has made life going pretty good for you. Now, obedience is actually kind of hard. How many of us are controlled by our money? How many of us are trusting in our money? How many college students begin planning out their lives as if attaining a career and comfort is the main goal? How many of us are starting down thinking about what kind of life we want to build for ourselves and the main things we're thinking about is what will be comfortable and how can I get enough money to be comfortable? What will be easy for me? Money, wealth, comfort becomes the main goal that we're living for. For I'll serve Jesus on the side. Jesus is the side dish. The main course, though, is I'm living for something that will make my life comfortable and cozy and convenient. I wonder, are you more committed to your wealth and the comforts that it will give you and the status that it will give you than to following Jesus? Let's ask some diagnostic questions. This last year, did you spend more time strategizing how to build your financial security or strategizing how to build up the body of Christ around you? Did you, this last month, get more excited about potential career opportunities that God has put in your path that maybe would make you have a little more financial opportunities? Or have you been excited about the work that God has been doing here and some of the baptisms we've been able to see this last week? Were you more controlled by convenience or by sacrificial compassion? When was the last time you chose to be generous, to part with wealth, even though it was costly? Are you more grieved and anxious about the financial challenges you face? Or about the way sin has ravaged the lives of people around you? Wealth is like a boa constrictor. It's okay to have one. Just be careful when it starts wrapping itself around your neck. Wealth will do that. If you're not careful... It will begin constricting around you, controlling your decisions, controlling your thoughts, controlling even your obedience to Jesus Christ. And so there is a real sense that the poor are not as endangered as the wealthy are. And listen, we are all wealthy here. I've heard it said that if you have a smartphone, you are more wealthy than King Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power in Babylon. We are wealthy. But the question is, are we trusting our wealth? 
There are two main questions I think we need to face in looking at this text. And the one is, why are we actually coming to Jesus? Like this man, we might be interested. We might have interesting questions about eternal life. We might want him to answer. We might look to him as a respectable source that could give us the right answer. And yet miss, miss out on the eternal life we're asking for because we're actually trusting our own wealth. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor in the 1800s, said to the wealthy in his congregation, he said to them, especially those who are not generous, who are stingy with their money, who are trusting in it instead of trusting in God, he said, oh, my friends, enjoy your money, make the most of it, give none of it away, enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout all eternity. Life is short, church. Money is a gift. But it can control you if you're, not healthy, if you're not careful. And a healthy way to think through money is to say, anything I've been given is a blessing from God, and therefore it's all His. And if Jesus tells me to be generous, I will be generous. If He tells me to lay down my life and follow Him, I will lay down my life. I have been called to imitate Him who was rich, though became poor for our sakes. And so all my money is His, and I will use it all for His glory And we remember, those of us who talk about the 10% tithe, that the 10% tithe is only to remind us of the reality that 100% of it belongs to Him, and that all our money and all our time and all our efforts are to be used for God and His glory all the time. That's what's being communicated here. Do you lack the one thing that Jesus is describing here? Though you might be interested in Jesus, do you lack... The repentant heart that says, I will deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you, Jesus. That is repentance. Let's pray. Lord, if there is none, there are no people here who have truly repented. If anyone here has, like this young man, had an interest in Jesus, an interest in eternal life, desire to do good and be good, but has not repented, turning from all other sources that could be his trust and turning to Christ and Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see how trustworthy you are And that forgiveness of sins is available for those who trust you. That treasures in heaven are available for those who trust you. And that you lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And you exist right now, able and willing to save all those who come to you in faith. I pray that we would desire the true and lasting eternal riches of Christ and entrust everything to Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.